0: Jonah chapter 1 is where we'll start this morning, the very end of it. According to the book of Jonah's key truth, its central message, salvation belongs to the Lord. We saw last week that the Lord had commissioned Jonah to an inescapable mission. He had assigned Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, a very evil city in the heart of the Assyrian Empire, a people who were hostile to the nation of Israel. And Jonah's assignment was to call out against the city of Nineveh with a warning of judgment that their wickedness had come up before the Lord They had had been tried in the courtroom of the Creator and had been found ready for judgment. And so the Lord commissions Jonah, one of the prophets standing in his presence, to go to Nineveh and to proclaim this judgment. But in an extraordinary act of disobedience, Jonah refuses to go, resigns his prophetic office, and heads in the opposite direction on a ship across the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord sends a terrifying storm to stop Jonah's flight, resulting in the ship's crew throwing Jonah overboard, which is what Jonah had instructed them to do. And these sailors then offer a sacrifice to Jonah's God. Yahweh, the Lord. And they may or may not have forsaken their idolatry and converted to the worship of the one true God, but they have encountered him and they have responded to him in the only appropriate way by offering a sacrifice of worship. But what about Jonah? What has become of the the runaway prophet as he sinks down through the depths of the sea? Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to this text today we ask that you would give us understanding and insight. Help us to grasp its meaning. And Lord, give us fresh strength to respond with our whole lives to its call. I ask that you would, in your power and your grace, give sight to the blind so that no one would miss your salvation. Amen. What happens to Jonah after he is thrown overboard into the raging sea is what has made the story of Jonah and the whale the stuff of literary legend. Even though the text here says it is a great fish and is probably not a whale as we think of a whale, if you have this image in your mind of Jonah sitting on a raft with a lantern floating in the cavernous mouth of a giant sperm whale... That is because you have seen Pinocchio okay? and you have transferred the image to the story of Jonah. That's not where Jonah is. He is not floating around in the mouth of a giant sperm whale. But that's a natural thing to do. Where there are white spaces in Scripture where the details are not filled in, we tend to fill them in with what's familiar to us culturally. So the fact that you've seen Pinocchio and disney the story of Jonah It's totally understandable. But understand, this is not a whale. This is a great fish. It's a large fish. And in some ways, the story is really not about Jonah and this fish. The fish actually has a a small part. It's only mentioned twice in the entire book. You might even argue that you could call the story of Jonah, Jonah and the plant, or Jonah and the worm, because the plant and the worm have significant roles in the Lord's teaching Jonah something in chapter 4. But on the other hand, this story is all about the fish. Because of what the fish represents in terms of the message of the book, salvation belongs to the Lord, which you can see here is the conclusion to Jonah's psalm. This is what we have in Jonah chapter 2, a psalm. You may even recognize how similar it looks to the book of psalms. It could be in the book of psalms. A psalm, this is a, a psalm of thanksgiving, and it recounts Jonah's experience of sinking and drowning, and calling out to the Lord, and being rescued. Chapter 2, verse 1, you can see, tells us this psalm is actually Jonah's prayer from inside the belly of the fish. Now, whether Jonah put this prayer together in its poetic form after he was spit out onto the land, or whether or not he composed it as a psalm while he was in the fish, we're not told. I tend to think he composed it while he was in the fish, given that he was in there for three days and three nights. But Jonah's psalm begins, like many psalms do, with this word of praise that summarizes what the psalm is about. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. This is Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, the word Sheol here is not hell, like we think of burning flames in a place of eternal uh, judgment and destruction. It is something like the grave. But it isn't the, the, the hole in the ground. It is the realm of the grave. You might say it's the realm of the dead as opposed to the realm of the living. Those who are in Sheol are cut off from the living. Jonah emphasizes that that in his peril, he cried out to the Lord. And he's making a graphic play on words. Do you see it? Because he blacks out, entering the belly of Sheol, And he wakes up in the belly of the fish. Jonah's life is rescued, you can see here, by God's sovereign compassion. Think about the Lord's sovereignty here. His command over Jonah's life, his command over Jonah's mission is made clear by the two verses that frame the psalm. The one at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 17, and the one that closes it, chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And the Lord spoke to or commanded the fish to spit him out, to vomit him out on dry land. That phrase, by the way, is very graphic, You read the word vomit, and you go, that's exactly what it would have been. Like I said, Jonah wasn't on a raft with a lantern. He was inside a stomach for three days and three nights. So when the fish projectiles him out of his mouth, Jonah comes out like he's been in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. The fish, then, is the Lord's means of rescuing Jonah, Despite how Jonah is vomited out, the fish is the rescuer, or we would say the Lord's agent for rescuing Jonah. And Jonah, he's helpless. All of this happens to him. So the Lord is in charge, the fish is the Lord's agent, and Jonah is the object of compassion. But it's pretty clear that Jonah is helpless. He has no power to save himself from drowning. He has no capacity for getting himself out of the fish. But I also want to make sure that you keep in mind that from Jonah's perspective, the Lord sends the fish to rescue him in response to his desperate prayer as he suffocates at the bottom of the sea. For Jonah, this marvelous rescue is the Lord's merciful, compassionate response to his cry for help. That doesn't mean that Jonah's theology does not acknowledge that God is sovereign, but that as he experiences dying, sinking down through the sea, that he cries out for help. And he sees the fish when he wakes up in the belly as the Lord's response to his dying. I want want us to see today in Jonah's psalm what it means to be rescued by the Lord. What it means to be rescued by the Lord. First of all, we see that to be rescued by the Lord means grasping his judgment. It means grasping his judgment. Judgment is why we are in need of rescuing. We are in need of rescuing. And when I say grasp his judgment, I mean coming to grips with the fact that we are under judgment. We are under judgment. Jonah understands that he is experiencing God's judgment, and it's personal. Hear Jonah's description, verse 3 of being pummeled by the pounding waves and currents as he goes beneath the surface of the sea you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me all your waves and your billows passed over me it wasn't the sailors who cast me into the sea you did These aren't some blind forces of nature at work. These are your waves, your billows. Jonah continues to describe his horror in verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. As he sinks and despairs of life, Jonah feels the crushing weight of the depths upon him. And as he reaches the bottom of the sea, he becomes tangled in the seaweed and vegetation. So that he is trapped, snagged. And this phrase, at the roots of the mountains, is talking about the deepest of deeps. He is at the bottom of the world, as far as Jonah is concerned. And here, death is a land. I went down to the land whose bars, the, it's a land with bars. In other words, death is a realm of imprisonment and bondage from which someone cannot escape. Listen to me, we are all under the Lord's judgment, the entire human race. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, every son and daughter is born under judgment. It is an uncomfortable truth. It is one that we look to deny and push out. We work hard to do so. It is a truth that we try to diffuse by sometimes elevating ourselves. I'm not really that bad. I don't do horrific, evil things to people. I don't kill anybody. I don't strike anybody. I don't steal things. We elevate ourselves. I'm really not that bad. Or we diffuse this truth that we are, as a human race, under judgment by twisting God's character. By molding God to a little bit lower expectations. Like, a loving God would never do that. A loving God would never judge people. So we work hard to get out of this truth. I'm not saying that we can connect, listen, this is important, I'm not saying we can connect every suffering with some sin we've committed. For example, I I became angry with my wife this morning, and so on my way to the office, the Lord engineered a fender bender. We tend to fall into that kind of thinking. Why is this happening? Oh, this bad thing's happening to me because I did this, or I didn't do this, that I knew I should have done. And we start drawing these lines. Now, of course, sometimes sin does have direct and obvious consequences. Jonah is an example of that. But we also suffer in ways that aren't connected to some sin or wrongdoing. Sometimes the righteous suffer, and the Bible's very clear about that. Who's the supreme example of that? Jesus, right. Jesus never did anything wrong. He was crucified according to God's good purposes. On the other hand, we cannot disconnect suffering from judgment altogether because suffering entered into life with our rebellion against God. Suffering came with the curse as Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden. In this way, all suffering points to our fallenness and that we are, every one of us, dying. Every one of us is in the process of paying the penalty for sin. And what is the penalty for sin? For the wages of sin is death. And when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, God was fulfilling the judgment that he had warned them of when he told them not to eat from the tree of, good and, of the knowledge of good and evil. The day of which you eat of it, you will surely die. That death was not an instant taking Adam's life and taking Eve's life, but one in which they entered into dying that ends in Sheol. It ends in the grave. This is the whole human race. Every one of us is plunged into the seas of God's judgment and is headed for Sheol. It's headed for death even if we try to prolong it, prolong not getting there. No matter what we do, I just heard a report this morning that Silicon Valley, the heart of the world of technology, is working hard to reverse the causes of death. Not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. No matter how you paint it, No matter what kind of external uh, fanfare you put on top of it, it's not going to stop death. Cannot reverse it. The only thing that reversed death was the coming of Jesus. This is why when the prophets spoke of the coming of the Savior King, they prophesy that it would begin to reverse the effects of the curse that's why the blind would see the lame would walk because Jesus is overturning the process of death he is demonstrating that that's why he came we are all dying and we are all under judgment To be rescued, we must awaken to the reality that we are under God's judgment. That is the first step. That we need rescuing. And that that salvation, that rescue, does not lie within me any more than it did with Jonah. Jonah could not rescue himself, and neither can you. And neither can I. Right in the midst of Jonah's terrifying experience is verse 4. And this is the recognition that I'm talking about. Then I said, as I slip beneath the billows and the pounding currents and begin to sink, I am driven away from your sight. In other words, Jonah said, I, would, I am banished. God is banishing me, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. This isn't some statement of confidence that he will live through this and again see the temple in Jerusalem. Jonah is talking about making one last appeal to the Lord in his temple, capital T, God's presence, heaven, temple, of which the temple in Jerusalem was a picture and a reminder. Jonah is saying that he will once more time, just one more time, he will make an appeal before God's presence where God hears the cries of his people. Yet I shall again look one last time to you for help. I will make one last plea for your compassion. That's what Jonah means. Which brings me to the second, the second point here. To be rescued means seeking his help. It means first, grasping his judgment. Secondly, seeking his help. Verse 6. Yet you... <laughs> this is the turning point, isn't it? Jonas cried out. Yet you brought up my life out of the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. This is the the turning point of the story. This is the intervention of the great fish. We know that the Lord appointed the fish. But as far as Jonah's concerned, how did this happen? He blacks out, wrapped up in the seaweed at the bottom of the sea, knowing that he is headed into the realm of the dead. And he awakes inside the belly of a fish, able to breathe, still alive. How did this happen? When my life, verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. When he says, I remembered. He doesn't mean he forgot about God. Oh, man, I forgot God, the Lord. He means that he deliberately turned to and cried out to, I remembered, I returned. The story of Jonah, I believe, has its closest parallel in the New Testament in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, which Aaron Meyer preached on a few weeks ago. Here at Crossway. This remembering is the kind of remembering that the prodigal son experiences while he's feeding pigs and starving to death. He remembers his father. He turns. Jonah says, I remembered the Lord. I turned back to him. I cried out to him. He's already said this many times, hasn't he? Verse 2, I called out to the Lord. I cried and you heard my voice. There's this crying out and this hearing. This is good news for those who are sinking into God's judgment. The Lord hears. The Lord hears you. The Lord hears your voice when you cry out to Him. The Lord hears those who seek Him. Those who grasp a judgment, whose eyes are opened to the truth and the stark naked reality that we are dying and headed toward death and there is no remedy and we are powerless in and of ourselves to overturn death. To stop ourselves from aging, to rid ourselves of cancer, or any other number of diseases or infirmities. Those who grasp that we as a race are experiencing this because we are broken, because we disobeyed God, and cry out to God, find a ready ear. We find one who hears us. We find compassion. The Lord hears your voice, and he's compassionate. This is why Peter would declare as he unfolds the gospel and the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Acts 2.21. This is why the Lord himself would call upon the human race in Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver deliver you and you shall glorify me. You you see, God saves us. He hears us when we seek him because in seeking him, he receives the glory for it. And ultimately, this is why we don't want to seek God, because he will receive the glory. And we are so filled with our own, our own, we are so self-deceived, I should say, to think that we have the capacity to save ourselves, to be morally right. Mm. Jonah knew he was under God's judgment. He's cried out and sought God's help. Being rescued means coming to grasp, coming to grasp God's judgment. And it means seeking his help, crying out to him. Thirdly, being rescued by the Lord means praising his compassion. Praising his compassion. Verse 8 Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What's Jonah saying? He's saying, man, anybody who looks anyplace else, anywhere else or to anyone else finds only emptiness. Will find only nothingness, disillusionment, disappointment. It is an empty pursuit. And when you choose to look to someone else, whether that's yourself or another god or another religion or having no religion, you forsake the one hope that you have of knowing steadfast love, the saving love of God can look nowhere else. What are the idols? Anything. (laughs) Everything. Except for the one true God. Vain idols. Verse 9. But I, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. And he's talking about offerings of thanksgiving and worship here. And he says, What I have vowed, I will pay. And what he's talking about here is either what he has vowed in terms of I'm going to sacrifice this. And remember, Jonah is praying from inside the fish. So the vow may have been, you have saved my life. This isn't bargaining. This isn't a vow. If you get me out of here, I'll worship you. We like to pull that one. That's called a foxhole conversion. That's the old cliche for it. The idea that someone who's in a foxhole experiencing bombs and shelling suddenly becomes very spiritually aware. Now, that could be very true. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. No one comes to Christ in those kinds of circumstances. I'm just saying we call that a foxhole conversion. Meaning that if you just get me out of here, I'll, I'll become a Christian or I'll stop doing this. I'll give up drinking or I'll, I'll whatever it is, I'll stop or I'll start tithing. Whatever, whatever the deal is. It's not what Jonah's talking about here. When he says, I will pay what I have vowed, he is saying, you have already saved me. And because of that, I'm I'm going to sacrifice this. This is going to be the offering. And when you have completed this work of salvation, after I get out of the fish, this is what I'm going to offer. Or it could be that Jonah is saying that by making this sacrifice, I am vowing, I am returning to my prophetic office. I'm returning to a state of being uh, loyal to you, to loving you, to covenant relationship with you. That's probably what Jonah's getting at here. Because remember, Jonah is where he is because he has tried to retire. He has quit his prophetic office. And so he's saying, What I have vowed, I will pay. I will come back, and I will belong to you only, and I will follow you only. This is praise for God's compassion, because it's the Lord's compassion that saves Jonah. It's this compassion, ironically, that Jonah is going to argue against in chapter 4. But it is the Lord's compassion for which Jonah is thankful and he, and he worships God. You see, compassion is the Lord's response to us when we cry out to him to be rescued. So you can see the movement in Jonah's psalm, judgment, calling out, crying out, turning to God, repenting, and then praising God in response, praising him for his compassion. Being rescued by the Lord means praising his compassion. Lastly, being rescued means proclaiming his salvation. Means proclaiming his salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the central message of the book. We have seen that the sailors experience the Lord's salvation in chapter 1. Jonah experiences the Lord's salvation in chapter 2. The Ninevites in chapter 3 will experience the Lord's salvation. And it is the Lord's salvation in chapter 4 that becomes the point of discussion between Jonah and the Lord himself. This cry is first of all a declaration, a humble acknowledgement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Only he saves. It doesn't belong to or with anyone else. It cannot be found anywhere else or in anyone else. Only he saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And when the Lord saves, no one can stop him. And how he goes about saving Jonah's case, it's the fish scooping him up off the bottom of the sea. The fish obeys him. The wind and the waves obeyed him. Everything obeys him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And when he saves, no one can stop him. So there is this declaration. But this declaration is also an offer. It is a summons Salvation belongs to the Lord. Seek Him. Come to Him. Cry out to Him. Be saved. Be rescued. This, in fact, is the Proclamation that is to resound through the whole earth. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 23. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his salvation. The whole earth is to be filled with this. And we know this is the special proclamation of God's people, just as it is Jonah's task This is what Jonah is to be proclaiming eventually in Nineveh. But this is the special proclamation of God's people. This is why this declaration, this summons, makes up one of our core commitments at Crossway. We are compelled to proclaim Christ, right? God has provided forgiveness for sin in Jesus Christ alone, and so crossway fellowship proclaims him crucified, risen, and returning. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In Jesus' death, in his burial, in his resurrection is our salvation. As the fish was appointed to rescue Jonah, so Jesus' death and resurrection. Is appointed by God to rescue you. This episode in Jonah points ultimately to the person of Jesus. It is a foreshadowing fulfilled in Him. And just in case you think, oh no, Sean's going allegorical here. I want you to see this in two passages in the New Testament, two places in Scripture that make it clear that this story in Jonah points to Jesus. The first is found in the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now let's pause for a second. The teachers and scribes, Jesus' opponents, religiously, politically, come to him and ask for a sign. Now on the surface that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Look, we want to believe you, but we need some credentials, we need some proof. That's what it sounds like on the surface. Why would Jesus respond to that kind of request with what is really a a rebuke? (laughs) An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Because this is not open questioning. This isn't um, objective seeking on their part. This is a test for control. This is a test whether or not Jesus will live under their thumb and come at their beck and call to do parlor tricks to prove himself. By asking the question, the scribes and the Pharisees are putting themselves, watch, because we do the same thing, they are putting themselves in the seat of judging whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. That in itself is rebellion, Because they don't get to decide whether or not Jesus is who he says he is or not. By positioning themselves as such, they are rejecting him. Because they are saying, you must prove yourself to me if you want my allegiance. God does not respond to any human manipulation or blackmailing or power play To reveal himself. Well, if God was real, he'd reveal himself. You do this and I'll believe in you. It's an absolute guarantee he will not do it. Because God doesn't come under our thumbs. That's why Jesus responds the way he does. You are an adulterous and evil generation. You will get a sign, all right? The only sign to be given is the sign of the prophet Jonah, verse 40. That just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so I will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what Jesus is saying is that, like the great fish, was God's sign, God's means of salvation. So, my death and my resurrection, burial, being dead for three days and three nights will bring about God's salvation. That's what Jesus is saying. And what is the right response to Jesus' death, burial for three days and three nights, and resurrection? Repentance. Repentance. That's why he makes the comment here, the people of Nineveh repented. And when this human race stands before God for judgment, That generation of Ninevites will stand up and their very salvation before the Lord in his judgment will condemn, will shame the very generation who saw Jesus. Saw him work miracles, heard him teach. Actually witnessed the fact that he died on a cross and there was an empty grave. Jesus makes a very clear connection, doesn't he? Jonah was actually in the fish three days and three nights. Jesus was actually in the grave three days and three nights. And he will save. There's one other passage I want you to see, and that's Revelation chapter 7. Because throughout the Bible... Salvation belongs to the Lord. I even read from Psalm 3 this morning. Did you hear it? It's in Psalm 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a theme throughout Scripture. 1 Chronicles 16. Tell of his salvation from day to day. The earth is filled generation to generation to generation of all humanity. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There is salvation. He saves. Turn to him. Someday in eternity, God's salvation will be proclaimed in worship. In perfection, in the very throne room of God, which is where the Apostle John is in Revelation chapter 7. He is viewing the multitude. And for those of us who know the Lord's salvation who have been rescued out of judgment, we will be standing with that multitude. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and the languages standing before the throne and before the lamb. Who's the lamb? That's the slain and risen Messiah King. That's Jesus. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, what? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, this is the opening up, the revealing of the reality that when Jonah cries salvation belongs to the Lord, we know that it belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to Him. Why is this so important to see this in the throne room? Because John is about to witness, through this prophetic vision, the judgment of the world, the destruction of all of God's enemies, and the end of history. And before God takes him there to show him what will come to pass, and why Christians why his people, the church, must endure, must overcome and stay faithful is because salvation belongs to him and to the lamb. He is able to save. And in the midst of judgment and destruction that is coming, he and he alone can save. So it begins with salvation belongs to the Lord and history will end with salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as Jonah was helpless sinking through the depths, and we are helpless to save ourselves, so, so we are helpless as your people to save anyone. But Lord, we rejoice this morning and give you praise that salvation belongs to you. And that there are many, some who may even be with us this morning, who desperately need rescuing. Not just rescuing from some difficult circumstance. From some some season of suffering in their lives. But Lord, who need to be rescued from the judgment, your judgment, your righteous judgment, because we are sinners, because we need to be saved, we need to be reconciled to you. We need to be moved, transformed from a, a place of being at enmity with you to a place of belonging to you as your people, as your child. And Lord, help us to see, help us to make this proclamation, this offer, this summons, salvation belongs to the Lord. Be saved today. Lord, be pleased with our worship. You have shown us compassion by rescuing us and making us your people. And you deserve our glory and our praise. Amen.